Welcome to the Jay Martin Show. If you're new to the show, my name is Jay. I'm an investor. I'm here looking for the smartest home for my cash. If that sounds like you, then I think you're going to like what we do here. Now, my guest today is Michael Gayad of the Lead Lag Report. I've had him on a few times. He's always a crowd favorite, and today's discussion was super, super fun, and I know you're going to learn a lot. We talked about markets and direction of capital flow both today and over the course of the coming up decade, but we also talked about human flow and American empire flow and where he sees talent, thought, and power migrating over the next decade or two. So phenomenal discussion. I know you're going to love this one. First, very special announcement. On November 30th, I'm hosting a live online conference called Crisis and Chaos, the Changing World Order. And I'll be asking all of my guests the question, are we heading to the next world war? Now, the guest roster is no joke. Individuals like General Wesley Clark, who was the former commander of NATO, Eric Prince, who founded Blackwater, the world's largest private military contractor. Elbridge Colby, who is the deputy assistant to the Secretary of Defense, and many, many, many more. Now, you may hear these names and be like, I don't want to hear what these warmongering neocons have to say, but I would just tell you what they have to say is influential and does matter to both your life and mine. So you're not going to want to miss this event. Uh, November 30th, go to crisisandchaosevent.com. Tickets are 50% off until Cyber Monday. So get in there quick and snatch them up. Here is Michael Gayad. Enjoy. All right, I'm here with Michael Gayad once again. It's great to have you back and good to see you, man. Uh, it's been a while. It's been like a year, I want to say. Yeah, it's probably been about a year. Yeah, maybe the last thing we did together was, was it a Twitter spaces? I was in a hotel in Whistler, I think, and we were talking about uh, broad market and gold and a handful of things, but that would have been, that was a long time ago, maybe 18 months or so, but a while yeah, back. Yeah, time, time flies when you're going through hell. I think. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's... Maybe that's the segue. So uh, here's where I want to start. Big, broad question, then I'm just going to pull on threads. If I were to ask you, broad outlook, Michael, market and economy, you know, what comes to mind? Well, uh, both, both, as you know, are not necessarily one of the same. <clears throat> but um, I guess it depends on what happens with long rates at this point. Um, so look, the, the I was pretty adamant all year saying that it's going to be a melt-up year, pre-election year tends to be strong, but that towards the end of the year, there'd be some kind of credit events. And the whole thesis was, you went through the fastest rate hike cycle in history, credit spreads at some point will widen, the Fed over-tightened, and that that would manifest you know towards the latter part of the year. Uh, so up until the start of November, uh, the outlook pretty, looked pretty nasty, right? You actually had a pretty sizable sell-off. You know, seasonality-wise was consistent with that that make up that look. Uh, and then you've had this pretty sizable run uh, in November so far. Uh, and it's happening as long yields are dropping. So you're seeing now the much awaited stabilization that's necessary in treasuries for the system to function. Now, that's short term. Uh, I'd argue that that is actually a good sign for the bulls if it were to persist. I'm using the word if they're purposely. Uh, because I still am of the very much of the mindset that risks are still pretty elevated, that uh, we still don't know the effects of when the lagged impact of all these rate hikes start to really dramatically impact the economy. Yes, you're seeing some interesting movement in small caps. Yes, you're seeing some positive seasonality on the stock market short term. But 
Consumer looks tapped out. Retailer stocks are telling you things are not that well for the consumer, which then goes into the economy. Now, I think the economy probably is going to be prob- uh, most likely worse than people expect. Um, we were close there to the uninversion, which is typically what you see just as a recession is about to start. Then that kind of came back in and re-inverted. Uh, but I suspect the economy is also going to be somewhat challenged because the reality is consumers can only put so much on their credit card without realizing their minimum payments are going through the roof. Yeah. And you are seeing cracks in terms of consumer spending. You are seeing cracks in terms of, uh, I think, the retail sales component. You see what's happening with Walmart. So, you know, it's a mixed picture. I still think the risks are very real. And I think most people are still blind to the reality that nobody knows uh, what's going to happen next, given how aggressive the Fed acted? What's happening with Walmart? Well, I mean, the chart looks like death. First of all, I mean, <laughs> they're seeing like, and, and and it's you know, look, I mean, when you see stocks like Walmart's stock, which you know, Walmart's a huge company, obviously, and a big tail on the retailer uh, side of things, uh, performing like that, and not just retailer uh, Walmart, but just uh, keep referencing the XRT retailer ETF has gone sideways. Okay. Right? So. It's interesting. There's the narrative that consumers are strong, and then there's the stock prices, which are telling you they're not. Mm-hmm. Walmart blames it on Ozempic, uh, as if people are deciding not to buy uh, food uh, because they're losing weight suddenly. It's like, okay, that's kind of silly. They're not buying uh, not because of Ozempic. They're not buying because the cost of an Applebee's meal is like sixty dollars for an entree, right? So it's like these yeah. narratives don't make much sense to me, but. Uh, the, the the point is, I, I I look at the the disconnect of the retailer stocks with the consumer strength narrative, and I trust the retailer stocks more than the narrative. Yeah, I agree with you there. Absolutely. Is Walmart actually blaming Ozempic? That's hilarious. Yeah, it's. Uh, uh, don't get me started. Yeah. All right. All right. Right. So, so for folks that are looking at the rally in the S and P right now, I mean, you can call this a rally, right? And some stocks yeah. are are performing super super well. Like Nvidia is back up another 30 percent, and. Uh, uh, you know, DoorDash up up thirty percent or so. You know, so for anybody who has pulled cash out of the market, they went to liquidity because every macro signal told you that was a good thing to do. And now they're watching their positions rally and feeling like they really misjudged something. You know, what would you have to say to that population of investors right now? Well, I think you got to be careful with FOMO. FOMO is not really a strategy; it works until it doesn't. Um, okay, so. I was adamant again that you have a credit event. And then I said, well, what if you don't have a credit event? So I put a piece out on Investor Place. I think it was the 16th of October. I said, okay, let's say I'm wrong. Let's say the, you know, we're going to be fine. Let's say the Fed stuck the landing. We're not going to have, you know, any kind of real slowdown in the economy. What's the play? And the play, which would allow those investors to potentially play catch up, would be small caps and emerging market stocks. In other words, the things which lag the most which have been in a prolonged bear market, probably have some mean reversion potential. Now, that should make some sense. If you're in a persistent risk-on environment, which again, I'm not. it's not my base case. I think there's other intermarket dynamics at play that suggest that's unlikely. One, you would expect the dollar to weaken, which is now starting. Okay, The dollar, you are seeing that, that coming off the boil as far as the temperature of a rising dollar being a concern for financial stress, now it's starting to weaken. Generally, when the dollar is weak, international investments do well. So you would expect emerging market stocks would do well. You're starting to see some signs of that at the margin. So there's some catch-up potential. Mm-hmm. The small cap side is really interesting. The small caps peaked in February. You know, the, the initial peak was February of 2021. I'd argue that's when the bear market really started. And 
the reason small caps have not done well in the U.S. this year relative to these large cap NVIDIA type names is because there's a lot of zombie companies. They're not going to be able to roll over their debt into higher for longer. So there's been this persistent headwind that's prevented small caps from really participating on the upside with the large cap tech names. Now, if you're in a risk on environment, you'd expect now that some of that headwind recedes, right? You'd expect that maybe the feeling is that if the Fed uh, is done hiking rates, that some of these companies that were at risk of no longer surviving, they start to actually having it, have a chance to survive because rates don't go further up, which means they can have a higher likelihood of survival. Okay, so those areas are underinvested, right? Momentum may be starting, and there's some real potential catch up there. But the point is that just because people missed out on this AI mania doesn't mean they're missing out on future gains. It just means that they have to rotate to where the next likely leader is going to be. Mm. Right? I do think that at some point, if you're going to be really bullish, breadth does have to improve. It's only a matter of time. If you're really bullish, sorry, what has to improve? If you're really bullish, the breadth has to improve. You have to see okay. other stocks start to participate. You Look, if, if we're going to be in an environment where a rising tide does not lift all boats, then we're not out of the bear market. I, yeah. I mean, in a, in a healthy bull market, there should be co-movement. There should be areas of the marketplace should respond relative to each other in a similar direction, as opposed to having this concentration of momentum, which is what we've seen pretty much all year. But you're not making that call, are you? Or do you think I, that's I think a possibility? I, I think it's, well, I think it's possible after a tail event. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's it's about the sequence of returns. Okay. So, so this is the other part of this too about the small cap dynamic. Pre-election years usually the strongest of the presidential cycle. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's what this year, twenty twenty-three, has been. Large caps clearly have stayed true to that script. Small caps have not. Small caps tend to underperform in pre-election years. So pre-election years tend to be strong for stocks, but small caps in pre-election years. Mm -hmm actually do tend to lag, not this much, right? Like what we've seen this year. Yeah. Election years actually tend to be the strongest for small caps, right? So next year, at least history would suggest, it's probably going to be a good one anyway in terms of the relative performance of small versus large, historically speaking. Okay. And that makes some sense, right? Because small caps are based on domestic consumer expectations. It's an election year. Every single presidential candidate starts saying, we're going to do this and that for the consumer, for the American economy okay so you would expect there would be some animal spirits there all right from the small cap side but that's for the year between now and the end of next year yeah you can still have some pretty sizable volatility again it's not that i'm one of those situations where i'm i'm bearish for the sake of being bearish there is a notable disconnect between bankruptcies in the private economy credit spreads staying tight which has been the missing part of this risk on risk off dynamic going back to how i said you know, hell, uh, how are you doing when you're going through hell, right? You keep going through it. You had this tremendous bond sell-off, which everyone claims they saw coming, but nobody could say they saw it coming with credit spreads staying tight mm. while bankruptcies are increasing in the real economy. My point would be that I think that you're more likely to see credit spreads widen, that corporate credit event I've been talking about before any kind of a real secular shift into small caps. But there will be room to make some real money in small caps. It's just a question of exactly what the timing is. Can you walk me through the corporate credit event that you just referenced? Yeah. So this is the thing that I have obviously been early slash wrong on, you know, because again, I have been consistent on this point that a credit event is coming. 
Mm-hmm. It's funny because at the end of August, I said, I think treasuries are going to have a massive move. And then it became clear to me entering September that maybe the credit event actually is not on the corporate side, it's treasuries themselves. And you saw this super spike in disruption in treasuries. People seemingly have a hard time understanding chronology of analysis when you're trying to think it through real time. But the, the whole corporate credit event basically is just another way of saying a VIX spike. Right. So when you're in a recession, default risk rises. Default risk meaning you know, companies being unable to survive, right? As ongoing concerns, bankruptcies increase, and bond investors in highly levered junk issuances start saying, you know what, I need to get compensated more for what I'm lending to you because I may not get that money back. So spreads tend to widen in terms of the yield differential between junk, right? Highly levered issues and higher quality AAA. So you've had this really tight spread still between junk debt and AAA in a way that's inconsistent with the private economy, with the real economy, inconsistent with bankruptcies rising, inconsistent with what you see when you're entering a recession, right? Now, if you believe a recession is coming, it's only a matter of time until default risk rises. There's a VIX spike. Junk debt sells off aggressively. There's a flight to safety in higher quality paper, which is the risk on risk off dynamic. And that is just simple cause and effect. That's not being a permable or perma bear. I mean, that's just what interest rates do. They're supposed to cause stress. It's supposed to cause a reevaluation of risk, right? Among companies that got used to very cheap rates. Again, I've clearly been wrong on that because it hasn't happened yet. Right? Instead, it was much more on the treasury sovereign side. But I find it hard to believe that you go through a duration crisis like what we saw the last two years and don't have a corporate credit crisis. Because again, cause and effect is there, right? So I think it's just a question of timing. That's not to say you short. That's not to say that you avoid being in stocks or avoid anything. You can be bearish and be long. But the point is, at some point, all of these interest rate hikes, you would think, should result in fear in the bond market beyond fear of treasuries. Okay. And so, you know, a lot of the... the main street economic indicators would point to this right and i i kind of wonder michael why we haven't seen an event like this occur yet so I mean, maybe that's what you're saying here but you know you already mentioned you know the tight credit conditions of the everyday consumer you know credit card interest payments are skyrocketing simultaneously another data point that's hit it hit all-time highs is new credit card application rejections so people reaching mm-hmm. out for new credit they, they can't get it anymore they could get it two years ago right that that's tightened right up and, you know, bankruptcies, did, did bankruptcies not hit an all-time high or like a 50-year record in August? I think uh, the, rate, yeah, the rate of it's increasing. I mean, this, you know, I've used that line before. It's an Ernest Hemingway play. Slowly, then all of a sudden. Right, right. How do you go broke? Slowly, then all of a sudden. That, I mean, that's simply how this stuff works, right? So consumers and real economy participants, they start to see higher rates, but they don't start to actually change their behavior until largely it's too late. Yeah. Right. And there were still quite a few programs in place that protected people from, and I had a guest on, who was it just last week, Michael Pento, walking me through some of the um, uh, pauses on mortgage payments that were still in effect in the US. I didn't know about this. I mean, there's similar activity happening in Canada, so I should have made the assumption, but you know, these programs are all coming to an end in real time this fall and winter, right? And, uh, you know, I'm really curious about the scale of, of how that squeezes consumers 
given the data points we already discussed and more like auto loan delinquencies rising. There are mortgage delinquencies that are that are rising significantly. Uh, Canada's some crazy stuff like extend mortgage payment or mortgage uh, amortization lifespans to like 60, 70, and in some cases, 90 years. Uh, central bank is now rolling that back, right? But there was a period of time where these kind of activities were occurring, not really making a lot of headlines, or at least that I saw. Uh, but yep. it sounds like there's a reckoning. It can always yeah. sound like there is though, right? Yeah, well, well yeah, and that's true. You always, you always have to be careful of being overly negative, right? Because let's face it, it is, it's a lot easier to make the negative narrative work than the positive narrative, yeah. right? So, yeah. I mean, that's just the reality. I don't think that's just sort of a a media clickbait thing. I think it's, that's just the way the, the human brain works. Mm. Now, having said that, I mean, again, it's a pre-election year. Small caps have dramatically underperformed, right? So small caps have been under underperforming because there is a feeling of that credit stress. Yeah, I think you have to think I think people forget the context. Again, pre-election year is the strongest of the presidential cycle. And yet 63% of the Russell 3000 after inflation, on a year-to-day basis, at least up until last week, were negative after inflation. And yet this is supposed to be the story. So that, that clearly the fact that the cycle tends to be so favorable in general, but not this year for most stocks, tells you that higher rates are actually doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're supposed to create relative pain, right? It has not manifested in a, in quotes, corporate e event, in a compressed sudden shock yet, right? But... That's why I keep going back to I'm skeptical that there's going to be persistent strength on an ongoing basis in small caps here, as opposed to just a trade. It's why I'm skeptical about uh, anything in terms of seasonality, because nothing has been according to script, because the way that rates rose does is, is clearly the, the, the disconnect between large and small is because of rates. There's mm -hmm. no other explanation, right? So you may not have had the events, but it's having an impact. Right. And often these events, they just take longer to materialize than anybody expects, right? And you can amend, extend, and pretend the terms of your loan for a lot longer, typically. There's always something you can do in the short term to buy a bit more time. Uh, and and I, I wonder, you know, sometimes we we look at these indicators and we make, I think, pretty educated assessments about what might occur. But if what we think might occur doesn't occur within the timeline we expect it. We kind of discount it. like, ah, I guess we were just wrong. I guess that's not going to happen. But, you know, more more frequently, it's like, no, just things take longer than you thought they would. That's what's going on. Yeah. And, you know, it, there is a fine line between being wrong and early. So sure. people will say, oh, if you're early, yeah. you're wrong. It's yeah, like, yeah. okay, I, I have an intellectual problem with that. It's like, all right, so you're telling me all those people in, in mid-2006 who were saying there's going to be a financial crisis were wrong just because they had to wait till 2008 to leave in? I mean, it, it the that move resulted in a lost decade. So who was really wrong there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, what I'm like it's about perspective. I, I think that's that's why I also try to frame things in terms of conditions. Look, I do believe deeply that there's going to be some kind of credit event out there. I thought it'd be sooner. Obviously, it didn't happen. Okay, that doesn't mean I'm, I'm now backing away from the idea that there's a credit event because the dynamic has not changed. We don't know when the lagged effects of the fastest rate hike cycle in history hit and typically when they hit they hit very suddenly but all i know is that i'd rather be wrong and early than right and late because you can't go back in time when it comes to investment thesis and that's what's always maddening to me about the way that people think about coming up with some kind of 
alternative narrative as to how things could play out when nobody knows what tomorrow brings anyway. Mm. Okay, I want to I want to pull something that I sent you in advance of this interview into this conversation now, and probably it's going to um, uh, touch on on some of what we just discussed. But I asked you, what is the public misunderstanding? right now from your perspective. And what you said was they're misunderstanding where we are at in the cycle. Yeah. So if you could expand on that for me. Yeah. It's like people are talking about you know, this idea that we're in this secular bull market uh, when you haven't taken out the prior peak after inflation. And when the Fed has done hiking rates, you <laughs> if the Fed has done hiking rates and if the next move is that they're going to cut, which Fed expectations are starting to rise, you know, I think it was March on the Fed future side. Why would the Fed start cutting rates? Because things are slowing down. It's not like you're at the start of a of a new expansion. Mm. You're actually resuming the contraction at that point, right? I mean, <laughs> this is what is is uh, wild to me about the narrative around rising rates were bad. Uh, rising rates tend to occur in a strong economy. Falling rates tend to occur in a weak economy. So the next move is that the Fed is going to lower rates. What does that tell you about where we are in the cycle? We're, we're in the late stage of it. Now, what's weird is that we're in the late stage of it with most things not having rebounded, right? So, which, again, goes back to that stat around 63% of the Russell 3000 being negative on an after-inflation basis. Small caps having done nothing all year. So I think the problem is people look at the S&P and they think that's a tell in the business cycle. It's not anymore. Maybe it was before. Automated flows from 401ks would go and put a portion of, of checks into Vanguard funds. But right now, uh, I, I think the business cycle is probably more likely to favor contraction than not. Okay. And that's when you say we're in the, we're in the late stage of it, you're referring to that that business cycle, correct? Yeah, well, the expansion side, right? Which is really what- The expansion you know, side of the business. Right, the growth side and all this, right, yeah. exactly. Because that's everyone's like, oh, the economy's strong. Yeah, of yeah. course the economy's strong. I mean, yeah. that's what like, the Fed, the Fed is, is not a leader, right? The Fed responds, right? So you have a strong economy, the Fed responds with higher rates. You have a weak economy, which means it's already taking place, the Fed responds by lowering rates. They're not dictating, they're following. Right. So anybody that thinks that, well, you know, we're at the start of a of an expansionary cycle and we have this hope of the Fed pivoting to really accelerate that. I'm not saying it's impossible, mm -hmm. but when the Fed pivots, that's usually a bad sign for the stock market. That's usually a bad sign for everything. Because why are they pivoting? Right. So okay. So if the Fed were to pivot now, you would recognize that as them trying to stimulate a slowing economy. Typically, they act late and their decisions take a couple quarters to actually right. make an impact. So if we saw a pivot, the indicator would be that things are probably going to get worse before they get better, correct? Right. And and by the way, you can see that in other market prices. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what tends to happen in a late stage of an expansion? Oil is weak. What tends to happen in a late stage of an expansion? Copper is weak. What tends to happen in a late stage of an expansion? Treasury yields on the long duration side fall, which is now starting to happen, right? Meaning long duration yields are dropping, prices are rising on the treasury side. So it, it just seems to me that this is where people are missing the point, right? Okay. And by the way, and in the early stages of an expansion, you should expect small caps to lead. 
right? Because if it's an early stage of an expansion, that which is highly levered will have the most upside potential, which is what happened towards the latter part of 2020 when small caps had this enormous run on a relative basis during the election as we had the reopening with the vaccines around COVID, right? And then they just meandered, right? Ever since then, ever since you know, 2021. So my point is that I think that's that's what's missed by the narrative. People looking at the S&P, looking at the GDP numbers, thinking, oh, this is all the start of something that's really great. We're in this kind of multi-year expansion cycle. Everything else is disagreeing. Okay. Michael, if, if we were to be, let's imagine we're sitting around a table in 2030, 2031, and there's 10 of us there. Some of us are really happy about where we put our cash today and where where the value ended up 2030, 2031. Some people are really depressed. Uh, what are the bets that people made that paid off? And what are the bets that people made that uh, ruined them? I would say anybody that in the next uh, 10 years closed their eyes and had some kind of blend of gold and Bitcoin probably will do okay. Huh, interesting. Probably. Um, because I think gold is, and, and I'll tell you why I'm saying that. It actually relates to the regret side. Because I think the regret would be equity investors. Mm. Right? Now, I've gone on record before saying this. I could be totally wrong, but I, I do think we are in a lost decade. Now, maybe not in the way that most people would interpret it, but let's consider that if you look at a 60-40 portfolio, over the last five years. You know, 60-40 portfolio after the last five years matches the rate of inflation, which means zero real returns. I put a whole piece on the lead lag report showing that. Literally, you look at a 60-40 portfolio, look at the returns over the last five years, look at CPI, it's pretty much the same. So it feels like we've gotten wealthier, but after inflation, we haven't. That's a lost five years on a real return basis. Now, right. admittedly, a large part of that, obviously, is the bond sell-off. Okay, well, bonds just went through a lost decade. Emerging markets have been in a lost decade plus. Mm -hmm. Europe has been in a lost decade plus. Small caps have gone nowhere also for five years. So, and by the way, the valuations on these Magnificent Seven names are stupid. Hmm. Maybe they continue, but my point is like, I don't know. It seems I don't think it's impossible to think that we're in a lost decade now. Which, by the way, you look at any long-term chart of the Dow Jones Industrial Average, it's not uncommon to have you know a whole bunch of big sideways before another leg and then sideways before another leg so under that scenario go to 2030 i think equity investors will be disappointed now if i'm right that we're in a lost decade there are not that many true diversifiers to hedge against that somewhat right the diversifiers would be i think gold because it doesn't really correlate to very much anyway right and I, I think Bitcoin can be a diversifier if you end up having some kind of counterparty crisis. Okay, now the reason I'm saying that is there is the narrative out there that Bitcoin is correlated to the Nasdaq, and that's largely true. Yes, but you did have a fleeting two moments this year, which I think were telling. Uh, in March, you had the regional crisis, regional bank crisis. Bitcoin acted like a counterparty hedge; it did well. It actually acted like a risk off safe haven trade for like a two-week period there, like gold did, mm -hmm. like treasuries did, right? And then in October, as the market was going down and gold was rallying, it was rallying with gold. So the behavior of Bitcoin, and maybe it's just spaces in the cloud, but it seems like that's changing a bit, right? Now, if that were to continue, I'd argue that that maybe makes Bitcoin 
a a a a sponge for risk off liquidity in a lost decade for equities, mm. just like gold. Right? I think I think I don't think that's that far off of a of a thesis. I don't think you'd want to go all in on Bitcoin relative to gold. I think gold probably serves as a better diversifier there, but I can see the two co moving certainly. Well. Yeah. And it comes, so, you know, again, I have no idea, but what I tend to default to is like, what can history tell me? Right. And I own a lot of Bitcoin for the reasons you just discussed. And frankly, I kind of see it as a bet on demographics, because if I look at like, who's all in, who's on the fence, who's adamantly opposed, you, you split those lines down demographic lines. That's generational for the most part, right. For the most part. My kids aren't going to question digital currencies. It's going to be all they know. There's you know generation between me and them that feel the same. So it's like in terms of adoption rate globally, it's it's I think it's just a bet on demographics. What do you make though make of when you see somebody like Larry Fink? Right, uh, I'm trying to find this quote. Right, you're laughing. So he came out and made some incredibly bullish statements on Bitcoin. It's going to be a you know I'm paraphrasing going to be a key. Uh, player in in the global economy and finance system, and I'm just like, he's not he's not taking any chances. CEO BlackRock, like nah, he's not, yeah. you know, he's only playing he's only playing hands he knows are are gonna win, right? I mean, that's what I believe. I think there's some 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 truth to that. So, what do you make of a statement like that from a guy like Larry Fink? Well, first of all, first of all I think you're gonna be a guy like Larry Fink. Let's let's call a spade a spade. You also have to be a very good salesman. I mean, that's yeah. Right. That's, yeah. That's not a knock on him, by the way. That's just fact. No, I get it. I get it. Right. I get it. And, and when see, I hear him say that, I'm like, you know, your chessboard's been set. You've made your move, right? And now you're just waiting for the rest of the the plebs to follow you, right? Like that's kind of how I do it. Yeah, exactly. And and if they're trying to pioneer the very first, you know, Bitcoin ETF on the spot side, yeah, I mean, it makes sense. He's got to talk it up to also get uh, believers so that they can get the 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 piping set up. People people don't understand the on the back end, how complicated that's going to be from a custodian perspective, right? In terms of having ETF and what do you do on the creation redemption side? So it makes sense. I mean, you know, that's, but I don't think what he's saying is necessarily sort of a signal that uh, Bitcoin will keep on rising. He doesn't care if people buy it or short it. He just cares that there's assets flowing to that ETF. Yeah. Right. I think that's another thing that's also probably missed. Now it is going to be interesting because, you know, you're seeing, all throughout October, I said Bitcoin will diverge. And I was saying that because I was very bearish on equities and it was diverging. I mean, it acts like a risk off safe haven. As this ETF you know, dynamic has shown itself, um, now it's re-correlated with the NASDAQ. And I just wonder if the institutional demand that the ETF would you know likely create would actually be a negative, which I know is not a popular opinion. But I'm pretty sure every time you've had some kind of innovative new way of accessing Bitcoin outside of holding your keys directly, mm-hmm. it ended up being a, like a short-term top. Yes. Right, with the futures, right? And then the futures ETF. doesn't have to be that way this time. But uh, I think people always have to question motivations. The motivation for Fink and for, for the ETF is not to push Bitcoin higher. It's to get people to just use it as a vehicle because either way they make money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And you're right, that missed on a lot of people and, you know, probably myself. So, uh, you know, but I open that up by saying what I tend to do is look at history, you know, and because you, you were talking about the gold versus Bitcoin, probably both are decent bets thinking forward, you know, seven to 10 years. I agree with you. 
And although I have a horse in the Bitcoin race, I have a bigger horse in the gold race just because I have more historical data. You know what I mean? Yeah, I can sure. just look back and say that has been the lifeboat every time for the last sort of five, 600 years. One day that may change. Uh, but, you know, it's going to take an event to convince me of that. Um, when you look at these events through the lens of that kind of history, Michael, so you can look back at the last 600 years and see the rise of five unique empires and their fall of the fall of four of them, right? We're now in the fifth empire being America, but there's been, you know, Portuguese, Spanish, Dutch, British, now American empire squeezed into 600 years. It's pretty tight timeline for that many empires to come and go. Um, I look at that history as well. And like, what does that tell us, right? About where, where might we be in the, the long game here, the, the big cycle of the American empire? What do you think about that? I will not use the term I use on X uh, that starts with the letter F, uh, but it's probably exactly where we're headed. Look, <laughs> we, this is, uh, uh, we are seeing Rome. Uh, seeing unfold. what? Rome unfold. Before. We're seeing Rome unfold. Okay. Rome. Yeah, I think so. I mean, and, and it, look, I'm, 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 <laughs> maybe I'm just bearish on humanity because I think social media has made us very stupid and dumb. It's made us uncivil. It's made us unable to activate system two of our brain, right? Oh. In terms of just yeah, Daniel Kahneman. Slowly, right? Daniel Kahneman is supposed to the reactive, which is what social media puts on us. Um, I've used a line before, you know, that movie Idiocracy was actually a documentary, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. So, so I think all this um, results in a very, from a very long-term perspective, I hate to say it, but in a very uh, unfortunate situation for the global, for global citizenship, broadly speaking. Mm. I don't know how you make money off of that, right? But mm. I just worry that we're, we're, we're now entering a stage in, in human psychology and human intelligence where we're actually devolving instead of evolving. Interesting. With all of this data, even with AI. Okay, so if all we're going to do is rely on uh, where Sam Altman goes and what happens next to chat GPT and all the amazing things that AI is going to give us and we're not using our brains because we're just typing and getting an answer, I don't know, it seems like we're just in a in a perpetual stage uh, stage of atrophy, right? In terms of how we interact with each other and mm -hmm. how we think, right? So that's what worries me from like a societal <laughs> societal collapse standpoint. If you're going to talk in those terms of those those types of metrics, that, that doesn't happen tomorrow. That's a slow burn process. But I am broadly bearish on humanity from that standpoint. Interesting, interesting. You know, and and how I think about the, I mean, frankly, the world, Michael's like. I distill things down to their simplest form as best I can. And when I think about, you know, the direction things might be going for me, it always comes down to the two most basic fundamentals. One is human nature, right? How are we with each other and with other people? And the second is raw materials, right? What do we have access to? On top of that, we build everything else, economies, currencies, technologies, et cetera. But it all starts with, do we cooperate? Are we co combative? Like, how are we with each other? And then what do we have access to leverage, right? And when you get a cooperate, a cooperative population governed by, you know, a system that incentivizes productivity, all this stuff and access to the right raw materials, you end up with America, right? When, when you don't, when you have sort of top-down authoritarian corruption, uh, division and no access, you end up with something else. Uh, tons of examples of that. So I tend to come back to that. If I look at the long trend of 
humanity. I'm bullish because it's a bullish trend, right? It makes you want to say, no, I'm long human ingenuity and progress because over a long enough time span, it's been up and to the right, you know, like it increased lifespan, uh, all the, you know, whatever, more access to clean water. So you name it, not everybody wins equally, but generally speaking, you know, uh, and then some, some developments occur and you're like, maybe this time it's different, right? I align with you completely on the social media front, by the way. I, I'm very worried about this. Could, so go, go in a bit can, deeper. Can, can, can I say something real, real quick on that? So yeah, like, yeah. I feel like I'm now getting to the stage in my life where it's like, you know, uh, old man yelling at the clouds. <laughs> but but and like I get it. Every generation says the generation after them is, yeah, yeah. Is, is dumb and stupid. Like I really do believe there's something different this time around, and I'm mm. not trying to I'm not trying to take a, you know dump on on younger people, but the 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 way that people have grown up with technology and grown up, and you can see this with stats as far as you know people having less sex, people not having as many kids. Like there's all kinds of interesting other things that for the last decade yeah. have occurred because of what's happening in terms of our ability to socialize, to just be respectful, right? The, the fact that everyone now feels it's normal to be a troll, mm. right? Like that to me is the unraveling of, of the social contract of society's very fabric. And that is more prevalent now than ever before in the younger generation, just because this is the first generation that's really growing up like that. Like that That's why I do think that this time is different from that perspective. So if it is, you know, you got two options, right? Uh, you can opt in or you can opt out, right? And I debate this often. Like opting out for me is like, I live in a town of 20,000, but I can move to a town of 100, right? Take my kids, my wife, we're gone. Boom. You know, back to homesteading. It's an option. You know, I used to live on a ranch. We could figure it out. Uh, the other way is to opt in and become part of the system. And, and then you're not blindsided by it, right? So I always say, People that are worried about losing their job to AI, well, yes, some people are going to be disrupted by AI. It's the people who aren't using it mainly, right? right? Uh, recently, we put out this long form uh, education piece and I had a couple of people respond to me and they're like, you know, all this education is going to be replaced by AI in a couple of years. You're wasting your time. And in my mind, I'm like, AI wrote the script. Like, obviously, I used AI to create this piece of content. Like, you know, you don't get disrupted by it if you're using the technology. Um, but you think it's different this time. And then if you think back to like, even like the Chicago riots and, you know, the civil unrest in the sixties, when it got so bad that political leaders are being assassinated, uh, in front of the public, do you think it's worse today than it was then? Cause we came back from that, but what do you think? No, I mean, it's not worse from that perspective in terms of the, the physical violence, but in terms of the apathy. Mm. Oh, I think, I think on the apathy side, and I think the misdirection is, is far worse than it's ever been. Far worse than it's ever been. Hmm. I mean, was, and, and attention spans are only getting shorter, which also makes it horrible, right? I mean, is, you have something, some atrocity that happens, and then they forget about it the next day, and nothing right. ever changes, right? Yeah. So, like that—that's what worries me. Look, to have positive change, you need to have effort. To have effort, you need to have an attention span. To have an attention span, you have to be able to have conversations with people that you disagree with respectfully. I mean, good luck with that. Yeah. yeah. So then is the key to rising to the top to be the outlier who has a bit of discipline, is willing to put an effort and actually get something done? Yeah. So so I do think in in general, it is true that 
So I used to be a big, big fan of Brian Tracy. Yeah. Right? Brian Tracy, right? Very well-known you know, guy who did all kinds of sales books. And he had this concept, which I, I believe in deeply, actually. He, he called it the winner's edge. So he had this great analogy. He said, okay, you know, uh, you go to a horse race and you bet on a horse to win. And let's say the horse won that you bet on, but it won only by a nose, slightest inch or two, right? The payout for betting on the first place horse is like 10 times more than the second place horse. But that first place horse only won by a nose. It's not 10 times more effort. It's just a little bit of extra effort that resulted in this outsized payoff. I think that dynamic is more true than ever before because everyone is basically, I think, becoming more and more average because they're being more and more distracted, which means that if you can put a little bit more extra effort in whatever domain that you're working in, yeah, the, the gains will be even more outsized relative to history, right? That winner's edge, that winning by nose. So I think I think it's true that the the discipline and the temptation to not fall in with the crowd while harder than ever before because of social media and because of the way that people interact with each other in general, um, the payoff will be so much more than ever also. That's, you know, I take that, that's like an optimistic take the way I hear it. I mean, not for most people, but that's the point, I, I suppose, right? As long as you can not be most people, you're the outlier. You're making the uncrowded bet. Right. And, and but I do think it's, it's going to be harder than ever before for people to do that. Yes. I mean, I think that's just the, the reality because, you know, it's always safer to be in the crowd. And there's so many different ways the crowd can be segmented because of technology and attributes and personality dynamics and all the stuff that it, it's, it takes a, a certain kind of extra effort, right? That's almost superhuman, I'd argue, to purposely try to find a way to even if you're perfectly matched with, it, with whatever tribe you're in, to step away from that tribe. So, so what is most important today then, given what you just shared, what we're discussing, you know, is it leadership? Is it, is the, you know, the country or the population with the leader who can I guess implement the, the smart regulation where it's required and the right libertarian principles where they're required, like, or just have a strong back, you know, what's, what's needed right now. I think being stubborn mm. is needed, um, which is a weird way to frame it, but because, it, and that the goes to attention span and purposeful effort, right? In in whether it's a politician or a political viewpoint, whatever it would be, like we're just your day-to-day -day life. Um, and maybe I'm talking from experience there because I've, you know, been public about my fasting and all the things I'm trying to do health-wise, which is, you know, on the surface seems really difficult, but I've done it, you know, successfully the last four and a half months, five months, and I'm a big believer in it. But I think um, I use that line uh, throughout when I was worried about, you know, a corporate credit event being imminent on X, I kept on saying, I will not relent. I will not relent. It became kind of a phrase. I will not relent. I think that mentality, that grit is what uh, is in a downtrend for most of society because it's easier to fall in with the crowd and to not put the effort in and to react and not to think going back to the system one, system two. Mm. But um, at the same time, I think if you can get out of the matrix of falling into that trap of not having the grit, of of, of purposely trying to have effort, you're going to be a better investor. You're going to be a better trader. You're going to be a better human being. You're going to be a better entrepreneur. You're going to probably live happier in general. While everybody else is, you know, living on on their screens, you know, hopefully you're actually living life. 
Stubborn, man. I like it. So, you know, and there's a diff- couple of different words we could probably use there. But so, you know, it's interesting. My Sunday essay covered a little bit of this. I talked about, you know, we were just chatting about intermittent fasting before I hit record here and how you're you're well down that path and seeing tremendous results. And, uh, you know, in my letter, I was like, we notice somebody when they're super fit walking down the sidewalk because they're an anomaly, right? Because there's hardcore resistance to becoming super fit. And most people just aren't going to do that. You know, for the same reason, most people are not satisfied with their job, not satisfied with their pay, working for companies that don't inspire them, but they settle, you know, they take the path of least resistance. In my letter, I was like, people just roll downhill, man. Most people just, they're just kind of tumbling down the hill. You know what I mean? And so if you can turn around and walk up the hill, it makes you an outlier immediately. But the same thing, like if you're waiting in line or sitting in a, in a, in a waiting room, right? You have this moment where you can stoically sit with your thoughts if you can resist the urge to pull out your phone and scroll, but most people aren't going to resist that urge. They're going to pull out the phone and scroll and go further, further down their own rabbit hole of biases and, and, and blind spots and convictions and all this stuff, because that's the rabbit hole of social media, you know? And what you're saying is like, so when you say you will not relent on your thesis, the corporate credit event, but what you're not saying is that you're not going to listen to the other side, because there's a difference there, right? Right. There's like having conviction in your thesis and understanding your time horizon, and therefore not sweating the short-term volatility, but also opening yourself up to civil discourse and saying, but what might I be missing along the way? Right. And, and, and which goes back to why I'm bearish on humanity because <laughs> it, there's no civil discourse with that. Right. It's like, and, and it's, this is what's so uh, we're in an environment where it, it's so easy to criticize and so hard to contribute. Hmm. I really do believe that I've used that line before. It's, it's always those that criticize the most who contribute the least. Right. And, and this is like a pervasive illness in investing in trading in markets on, on different timeframes. So for me, it's that stubbornness. Um, like I said, someone somebody said to me, uh, I've never seen somebody so stubborn and so wrong about this. It's like, yeah, you're damn right. That's uh-huh. how this works. Right. Like, and, and, and that's, that's, that's kind of in the blood. And also because I, I have a general, affliction towards being like the crowd you're not gonna be remarkable if you're with the average and it's just so easy to be in the average now that's that's kind of the, the point right so mm. um, but even taking that to markets it's like all right so that's a good even example of during let's go back to the large cap small cap thing right okay so if you're gonna uh beat the market you have to choose a different market all right that's asset allocation 101 okay mm. hard to beat the s p when the s p is the only game in town Okay, well, if that's going to be your average and the SP is the only game in town, great. Everyone's going to be in that until at some point there's some reversal because it's overextended and it's overinvested. In which case, how do you be extraordinary? By not being in the S&P. By not being with the average. Mm-hmm. By being in the thing which is lagging, which might be small caps or emerging markets or maybe betting on a credit event because when it happens, it probably happens slowly then all of a sudden. right? But it's like, I, it, it's very basic, simple stuff that you can apply to markets, but I think you're, you use that term correctly. Time frame mm. becomes everything when it comes to uh, thinking about where to put your money at risk to get better returns than the average. And time frame is also a function of attention span and short termism mm. when everybody thinks that mm. if you're saying something has to happen, it has to happen tomorrow. Mm. When in reality, it can take a while. Man, I love that quote. If you want to beat the market, you got to find a different market. 
Yeah, and of course. Just on the same roller coaster as everybody else. It's like, what do you expect is going to happen here? Right. Um, and then when it comes to emerging markets, Michael, are like, how do you factor that into your investment thesis? Do you look at specific markets? Do you look at managed products and vehicles? You're like, how do you how do you play that? All right. So admittedly, emerging markets have been a heartache for me for a while because my mutual fund, I decided to actually play a risk on an emerging markets when there's yeah. relative strength there. And emerging markets have been like death by a thousand cuts. Mm. Right. I mean, just in terms of the broad averages, right? They, they've gone, India's done well, obviously, but Brazil, as we know, hasn't done well, despite it being very cheap. China is a basket case, right? As far as trying to invest there, headline risk, all this stuff. Yeah. Um, if you're a advisor, right? Um, the best way to avoid a future lost decade is by investing in something that's already had a lost decade, <laughs> right? Yeah, by, okay. by definition, right? Yeah. Let's say you can't have a repeat. I mean, you can say that with Japan, right? We have said, you know, mm. a successive number of lost decades. But my point is, it's like at some point, unless the world really is going to be driven by just these magnificent seven names, in which case we're all screwed anyway, because there's no competition, right? Then you got to assume at some point emerging markets will work. Right now, for emerging markets to in quotes work, you do need to break the U.S. large cap tech dominance because a lot of these emerging market proxies, as you know, tend to be very financials heavy, very commodities heavy. Mm. So, in order to get momentum back into financials, in order to get momentum back into commodities, you have to break where the FOMO is strongest, and the FOMO is strongest right now in these AI names. So yeah. I'd argue that you know any kind of secular shift into emerging markets would be a secular shift out of U.S. large cap tech. It's just money rotating. Yeah. Okay, I buy that. And and regionally, are you? Could you speak even broadly enough to say you're more bullish on you know Asia versus South America, or is it is it too tough to make those kind of calls? No, I, look, I'm a fan of Brazil. I think actually Brazil. I mean, just the Tavi Costa, who I've had on space. I think you're familiar with him too. You know. Bang is a drum on Brazil. I have talked about Brazil before in, in my own writings. Uh, he's Brazilian. Like, no, yeah, he's a little biased in that. <laughs> but, 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 the, but listen, I mean, the price to earnings ratios on some of these uh, stocks on it are like you know five or six. Mm. I mean, okay, so you, you sure you put a discount for geopolitical risk or, or government risk, whatever you want to call it. But it's like that can't be that much. I mean, at some point you have to assume valuations will matter, as opposed to you know a P of thirty or whatever, ninety or eighty for Nvidia. Right. I mean, unless we've all lost our minds and and fundamentals don't matter, which maybe is possible because again, we're we our, our we're just reacting off of charts rather than realizing that we're owning actual businesses. Yeah. Right, which is system two in in the brain. Um, I don't know. It seems like that's a good way to beat the average. I like it. I want to uh, I want to shout out your Substack, Michael. Um, if people want to hear more of what you have to say, your Substack army is like already at about a quarter million subscribers, um, tuning in every week. What what do they hear from you? I appreciate that. So I mean, there's every single day. There's a different post that goes out, weekly signals, macro observations, sector analysis. Look, I'm very. Um, I keep going back to X as a persona. And it's a persona that works. It gets the reach. Some people like it. Some people get the joke. A lot of people don't, which also goes back to I'm bearish on humanity because most people don't seemingly understand sarcasm, hmm. which is the real sign of intelligence, by the way, is if you actually understand sarcasm, uh, which again, makes me just nervous about society. But the uh, it's a lot of a lot of the work that I do is me just trying to interpret market movement without a bias, right? Like yeah. I'm not a, I'm not a 
perma bull or perma bear. But if I'm seeing that defensive sectors are leading in an up move, and I know that the research shows that that tends to be a warning sign for a down move, I'm going to call it out independent of what, you know, some technical squiggly basement trader might say, right, about a particular chart on the S&P. So a lot of it's just me trying to interpret from an intermarket perspective. And also, you know, because I'm I'm naturally skeptical of most technical patterns working and because I've back tested a lot of different things. It's me also basically calling out the things that don't work, which, by the way, I think is as important because so many people reference things that I can tell you are mind blowingly stupid and they might work because of randomness. But if you actually test what they're saying, what these people are saying, you lose your mind. At, at the confidence level that these people uh, have with, with some of the stuff. So, um, you know, it, it's it's meant to be objective. The persona on X is different. Um, I'm I'm right a lot and I'm wrong a lot, just like everybody. But at least I'm consistent in my process, even if the outcome doesn't play out. Yeah, I love that. And it's the lead lag report for anybody who wants to check it out on Substack. Also on Twitter, lead lag report and on YouTube. Uh, if you want to hear more from Michael, look. I appreciate you coming on, man. It's always fun chatting with you. This was a super fun conversation. Uh, I really appreciated it. So thank you. Uh, listen, you you are, I, I want to get to your uh, builds because I mean, you're a very healthy guy. Okay. You're muscular. I'm trying to get there. So it's more than just me being loud. I can show it physically. So uh, <laughs> you're, you're an inspiration for me on that. I appreciate that, man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I got three little boys. So I got to like, I got to beat them at sports until they're at least like 16, 17. You know, that's my motivation. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. <laughs> okay, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Good stuff. Thank you. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor. Follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.